Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this discussion with Stephen Muirs, the author of Culture and Values at the Heart of Policymaking. Uh, Stephen has had a highly successful uh, and lengthy career in government and government advising. Uh, he has worked in number 10 in the um, uh, strategy unit, in the Prime Minister's strategy unit. He's worked at the Ministry for Justice. He's also worked uh, in the Cabinet Office generally. And now he is the head of strategy and market development for Big Society Capital. Um, Stephen has been a fellow of the Institute for Policy Research. Uh, and he joins us as our guest this evening. Uh, we have a decent amount of time to engage with Stephen, so we will be talking with him for uh, the next hour and a half. So uh, without further ado, I uh, would like to uh, ask Stephen to perhaps give us a overview of his highly successful and interesting career in government and what lessons uh, could be presented to our students, our students on the Masters in Public Policy program and our students in the uh, professional doctorate in policy research and practice. So over to you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Charlie. And good evening, everyone. And I'm delighted to be talking to you all this evening and very much appreciate the, the opportunity. Um, so yeah, Charlie, you asked me, um, what's the sort of a bit of a, the history and the story so in some ways at least the initial part of it is a pretty conventional one for someone in the, the British civil service or, or public service in that I joined the fast stream as it's called of the, the British civil service and um, straight straight from university and was lucky enough to join join the cabinet office and then begin the, the graduate training program from there um, and then I did a series of roles in the cabinet office uh, went to the Department of International Development for a bit, um, which gave me some very interesting and different perspectives on, on challenges uh, overseas. And, and I particularly uh, focused on the UK government's aid programme to the uh, Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union countries, which um, doesn't, doesn't really exist anymore, but at that, at that time um, uh, certainly did. Um, back to the Cabinet Office again, uh, when I was, became one of the Deputy Directors of the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Um, this is a... a quite a pivotal part of my career really because I, I did two stints there one was a more junior official and then when I, I then when I came back at, at this point and this was in the sort of later days of Tony Blair's premiership and spent a, a, a period there working mainly on sort of public service reform issues health education welfare that kind of thing and actually the the, the roots of some of the um, stuff that goes into the book that we're Partly talking about this evening, um, or that prompted me to be here this evening, um, get, get, uh, particularly from that period in my career, because I think it was there was a point where uh, that that Labour government at that point had been in in power for coming up to ten years, um, had put a huge amounts of effort and drive into particularly public service reform, these areas that I was working on, and there was sort of a lot of conversation in in government among the ministers, among the civil servants like me, working on those things that actually. Well, why are things not working as we hope they would? What are we missing? What are the um, ingredients of the policy that we're not uh, managing to get, get our heads around? Actually, some of these questions around, around culture, particularly, um, both culture of delivery institutions in government, but also wider social societal culture, sort of began to come to the fore. And I, I wrote a sort of short discussion paper at that point with, with one of my then colleagues, who's, who's still actually a senior um, British civil servant, 
um, about some of these issues around culture. And, and that, that was sort of the beginning of my, my thinking on, on these issues. Um, I then moved on to a series of other, other departments, uh, worked in uh, as part of energy and climate change, as then was, um, and then also into the wider public sector. Uh, I was on the um, executive team of a body then called the Homes and Communities Agency, now known as Homes England, which is responsible for delivering social power to regeneration in the UK. Uh, and was also on the board of an NHS trust, uh, which gave me a much more grounded sense of sort of delivery, if you like, as a, a primary care trust in West London, um, managing GP services, health services, and so on. Uh, one, I think, particular piece of advice or reflection that I would give people is that I think I've, I've benefited a lot in my thinking and practice from having a pretty varied career, mixing between lots of different ministries and actually working in central central governments and very central government like the cabinet office other central departments um then an arm's length delivery body like the homes and communities agency uh, also being yeah, an nhs uh, board, board member and as well as having the, the international bit uh, both in time energy and climate change briefly and in, and in diffid um then uh, my sort of more recently then i moved back to the cabinet office again um worked in the cabinet secretariat uh, during the coalition government so spending a lot of my time trying to sort out arguments between Conservatives and Liberal Democrats about all sorts of things. Uh, became particularly a lot of health, education, welfare, um, but I was also at that time responsible for writing the Queen's speech and managing the government's legislative programme, which is a, a strange piece of sort of arcane process and system, and particularly for non-UK listeners may not be very familiar, but it's actually sort of pretty crucial to where government makes judgments about its priorities. Uh, and then moved to the Ministry of Justice, where I spent an uh, extended period as Director of Criminal Justice Policy, uh, which means looking after things like sentencing, criminal court procedure, and the relationship between um, the court system and the, the judiciary and police and the prosecution service and from a sort of policy perspective rather than a delivery perspective. Um, more recently, I've actually moved outside government. Uh, and as, as Charlie mentioned, I, I'm now uh, working for, I'm actually interim CEO um, period at an organization called Big Society Capital, which aims to connect investment capital to social organizations that are trying to improve lives in the UK. So I'm bringing sort of social change experience and policy influencing and systems change experience to a, to a different context out, outside central government um, to broaden, broaden my experience. Uh, so that's, that's sort of a, a, a wide picture and, and the book um, comes from all those, all those experiences. I particularly sort of gestated by that period in the, in the strategy unit but then subsequently uh, informed by a lot of conversations. Uh, not least by a couple of days I spent in Bath. Um, uh, I mentioned I've been a policy fellow at the Institute of Policy Research and in 2016, just about the point I was about to leave central government actually, I spent an extremely productive and reflective couple of days in Bath with a, talking to a whole range of people in the university which sort of crystallised quite a lot of these this thinking I had around the importance of culture and values as part of something we need to take more seriously in policy making and uh, the, the book that I've just published is, is ultimately sort of emerged from, from all of that uh, coming together. Okay, very good. And, and you, from that very varied mixture of government departments um, and responsibilities, what would you say was the, the red thread uh, in terms of skill and knowledge uh, that unified that? What, what enabled you to shift seamlessly, if you did shift seamlessly, right. between those different portfolios? Uh, certainly not always seamless, um, def definitely some bump bumps along the way. I think the the most dominant sort of uh, common theme through it, uh, is a lot of the roles I've played are what you call sort of strategy roles in organisations. So 
the sort of roles that um, pull together and synthesize and make sense of priorities and clarity of direction and trade-offs that an organization is trying to make. And those kind of skills and tools around taking the big picture and making sense out of the complexity and boiling the complexity down to a, a finite or sensible number of trade-offs and choices that a, a minister or a board or a senior management team need to make. Um, that's certainly been a, a consistent theme through a lot of it. Um, and then from a sort of issue-based perspective, I guess I've done a lot of work that has revolved around the delivery of sort of social services. So whether that's health, justice, education, welfare, those sort of systems, particularly in the UK context, but a little tiny bit international context is where I've got more grounding um, in terms of the sort of policy themes and sort of institutional environment that I've, I've spent a lot of time on, whether from a cabinet office perspective or Ministry of Justice as a line department or um, it, it sort of further, further on and, and now in my, my role in the nonprofit sector. And, and in terms of that, I, I like your, your, your focus on synthesis because um, in a lot of academic work, we, we focus on analysis. So how did you form that capacity to move from a purely analytical background to and training that most professionals receive now to that synthesis capability? How do you, how do you hone that skill? Um, that's a really interesting one. And actually, I, I'm not totally sure I know the answer. Um, I think it is something the British civil service does train in people um, to an extent, um, not always formally, sometimes more through on-the-job type training, because, because of this practice actually of moving people around quite a lot uh, between ministries and roles, uh, meaning that the ability to sort of pick up new things and connect the dots is actually something that's highly, highly prized I mean, as coached to an extent. I think another part is um, I've certainly had training in skills and techniques that have actually come from outside government that come from a some of the large professional services firms, this is actually what they're very good at. So um, the, you know, Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey type people of this world, some, some of the other sort of large professional consultancy type firms, that sort of synthesis piece is a lot of what they do. They're, they're being, often being paid by harassed chief executives to make, make complex things, synthesize complex things for them and make, make the choices clearer. So although there's analytical stuff underneath, the um, sort of ways of, structuring often i think it's about structuring questions that you know uh, we can all do lots of analytical work on if someone asks a question we can analyze it but working out which questions you are ask in which order and then when you present them back which order do you present the answers back in so they make the most sense that, that that is part of this kind of synthesis sort of strategy skills which i've done a lot of and had some formal training in and a lot of sort of learning on the job messing up and doing it better the next time um and, and yeah i think some of those those skills yeah so some of it definitely although I've received some of the training in government originates outside in some of those sort of bits of the world, in fact, probably less from the academic sphere. Okay. And, and where would you, um, you know, you focus on this ability to, to, to formulate, to pick the right questions and then answer them in the right sequence. Was there any particular point in your career where somebody mentored you into how to pick the right questions, to ask the right questions, and then how to, how to make your point, how to make a minister understand what the options are and, and what the consequences and trade-offs are. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a few, a few people who I came across who are, who are brilliant at that. Um, and I think um, one, one particular individual who I worked for, who some of you may now know, or he's a fairly well-known public figure. And so Gavin Kelly, who's now in charge of the Resolution Trust in the UK, which is sort of 
um, think tank that works on issues facing low income households. Uh, he was my manager for a while in the strategy unit in the cabinet office. He subsequently went to work for Gordon Brown as one of his sort of closest advisors in number 10. And he was definitely someone who, through an experience, he'd been in academia and then in sort of think tanks and then had come into government. And, and through that, sort of developed a, a, an exceptional ability to boil down the right questions and yeah, play them back in the right way that a decision maker could make sense of them and make the right choice. That's someone I very strongly um, le- le- learned from. Um, another person who, uh, yeah, frankly, was brilliant at all those kind of things. I w- was very lucky enough to work with closely in my last stint in the cabinet office was the sadly now deceased former cabinet secretary, Sir, J- Sir Jeremy Hayward, who um, what was yeah, is a, a legend in, in current Whitehall circles. Um, but his ability to see amid the 500 things on the table, which were five things out of the 500 that a senior person, the prime minister, whoever, um, would actually really need to worry about. Uh, pretty astonishing um, and seems sort of telepathic some of the time but working with someone like that over a period you sort of start to see the signals of what why is it those things are important what are the frame mental frameworks that are going on to help them make those choices about what what really matters so ultimately particularly in a sort of central government like the office, that, that is almost the most important thing there's so much noise there's so much stuff going on um, a lot of which uh, either isn't relevant or you can't really understand it or if you did you couldn't do anything about it anyway uh, working out where time and effort should best be applied is extremely difficult. And, and I mean, this is true in any complex organisation. That's not the point about government. That's true of any large complex organisation that faces sort of lots of things happening at once. And and does that does that knowledge or ability to separate signal from noise um, is that something that really comes just from experience uh, or the culture of the unit that you're involved in? Or is it something which your, um, your, your training and your, your previous formation actually enabled you to, to accomplish? It's um, a very interesting question as well. I, I think there's definitely something about context that, that it's, it's easier in a context which you're a bit familiar with because you sort of see the warning signals of the thing that is bigger or more difficult. And so certainly when I've shifted into new different departments or different contexts, it's taken a little bit of time to to start being able to do that filtering because you don't quite know what a red signal looks like in the same way. Certainly when I shifted out of government, that's taken me a little while to tune into a slightly different set of set of priorities. Um, but it, 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 it's also something about, and it helps if you have, if, and this is back to the sort of the trade-offs, choices, priorities stuff. If you've got a sense of, of what the, trade-offs and choices are that the organization is making at the highest level you're helping them make make that so you know where we're actually trying to get to and what's important and also crucially have have a sort of set of working hypotheses about how we're trying to get there that then that that there is a way of thinking about what's important so so i I, in most of my jobs i've tended to try and say yeah what are our current working assumptions about how we're trying to get to the thing we're trying to get to and then, I, and then you, you filter in, as it were, that the signal is some of the stuff that is either confirming or denying some of those hypotheses. And it's actually quite a good exercise, I find, to write that down. So, okay, we think we're trying to get to A. Um, to get to A, we need to believe, or we currently believe A, B, C, D, uh, D, C, E, and F are true. And we'll know if they're true for these reasons or not. Um, and, and these are things we might want to look out for to know if they are true. And those could be like factual data things or assumptions about how, how others might behave or about how the situation might change. But, at least thinking in that way about what do we currently believe about the world we're navigating 
And then as things, new information or issues come in, you can think, well, is this irrelevant to that, those hypotheses? Or does it confirm one of them or perhaps worse, mean one of them is totally wrong and you need to come up with a new thing? Okay. I mean, that, that, you, you, you bring up a very interesting thing, which I know you focus on a lot in the book, which is this idea of, of confirmation bias. Uh, and that this shows up in, in a lot of government. And one of the questions from, from the students sort of looks at this in a, in a particular angle that, you know, does government avail of, of external professional services from uh, outside uh, professional service companies to legitimize decisions or to effectively hunt for for evidence which is in agreement with the, the dominant... Um, you know, a priori assumption about what policy pathway should be taken or what analytical uh, framework is most effective. Um, what would be your uh, experience uh, over many elements of government of that issue of confirmation bias and, and the use or possibly abuse of, of external professional bodies to provide legitimacy uh, for decisions one way or the other? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that is a picture that I recognise to a quite a significant degree, I have to say. I, I think um, uh, in my experience in government, that there's a couple of reasons that, well, there's different reasons professional service firms get brought in. One is sometimes to sort of deliver something more technical that, that the civil service, for whatever reason, doesn't have the capability to do. And that's a little bit different because it's, it's often something very precise and not really about advice or a policy question. But when it is at the more sort of strategic type level, I think it very frequently is um, structured by a, a prior set of biases about what the answer ought to be and that uh, asking, yes, getting someone to, to sort of expensively validate what you kind of thought already is quite often uh, what happens. I, I, to be clear, I think that's exactly what happens in the private sector as well with the purchase of, of services from those firms. I don't think this is a point uniquely about politics uh, and certainly my pretty limited experience of seeing how other organisations outside central government purchase advice services and professional service firms is, is that it operates in a rather similar way. Um, but I think, as I've made a point in the book, I mean, generally evidence and research lands into a set of pre-existing assumptions. That's how we all think about the world. Um, and particularly given that the political imperatives that tend to drive policymaking, actually, you know, something that is interesting that completely doesn't fit the worldview that underlines that, that set of political imperatives it is not actually very helpful because it probably in the context you're operating in is not implementable uh so so yes i think that is often how uh, external advice is, is commissioned um and i think we should probably all be a bit more honest about that sometimes and, and in terms of you you mentioned the the um the pre-existing cultural and and, and biases and, and priors that people use to then analyze the lenses by which they see the evidence when it's eventually obtained uh, which goes a lot into culture and values. Is there a difference between the culture and values between government departments? Does the Ministry for Justice look at the world differently to the Treasury, to the Department of Education, to the Department of Health? Is there that profound a difference between departments? Or is there a general home civil service way of looking at the universe? And as an addendum to that, does the outward looking components of the civil service, such as the foreign and, foreign and commonwealth office, does that have a completely different culture and set of priors to everybody else? 
It's it's a really yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, we, we used to sort of joke about this bit when I was in the in the cabinet secretariat. So you had this sort of small smallish greens sort of about twenty odd of us who all sort of shadowed different government departments, and our job was sort of you know help help manage business from those different departments, and we'd all sort of you know, compare kind of how they would approach it. You'd, you'd send a request to all, all the departments and they'd all come back, you all approach it rather differently. It would sort of tell you something about how they worked. And sometimes it was just about the individual minister. Um, and there's definitely something in the UK system about how actually the Secretary of State at the top of the department has really quite a lot of power and can determine quite a bit about how that department approaches things. And I, I think I quote an example in the book of when I was sec uh, in the Ministry of Justice and we had a change from one Secretary of State to another, who they were from similar, from the same political party, actually from similar ideological wings of that political party in many ways, but because their sort of worldview to, to, um, was so different and the, and the way they analysed information and thought about what was important was so different, the department had to change a lot about what we did, um, essentially from one who was extremely numerical and driven and like viewed the world in terms of kind of thought, thought about financial incentives as a key driver of sort of performance and change in the world uh, to someone else who really wasn't very interested in numbers uh, and was much more interested in sort of ideas and a kind of classic sort of sense and sort of more abstract concepts uh, and then they're interested about how those interacted with kind of leadership and people and kind of people with big ideas or kind of what brought change in the world rather than economic incentives uh, and so and, and it took us a civil service a while to understand these sort of different kind of worldviews and sort of cultures that these individuals came from. Even though, yeah, they elected the same manifesto, the same party, actually agreed with each other on like most policy stuff. But then you had to sort of produce totally different kind of work because otherwise you just wouldn't, wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, so anyway, that's the slight size of your question about different departments. That's about different ministers. But there are, there are departmental cultural differences. Um, which I think partly reflects where a department sits in its delivery system. So. A good example um, from uh, so two departments I worked with sort of at the same time had to operate very differently. One was Department for Work and Pensions, um, which for those of you, you know, people non-UK people perhaps who don't know, uh, delivers welfare payments and uh, it delivers uh, billions and billions of payments to, to people in the UK every year, um, which is it, it's a huge department. Um, it's it's pretty centralised. Like virtually all of its delivery takes place uh, through. Like parts of the department, it's not sort of relying on external parties to do it for them. Um, so, so it's it's a it's a very sort of structured machine essentially. And, and there's sort of a cult thing there. You know, the DDP was very analytical, like excellent on numbers for reasons because they they control sort of billions and billions of government government amounts of government money. So they have to be like very very good at financial analysis numbers, but very sort of linear. And they sort of do they do things in a kind of prescribed linear way quite predictably, sometimes quite slowly, but pretty accurately. Um, then we had a, then at the same time, I was doing a lot with the Department for Education, which has virtually no direct control over any of the stuff that it delivers, because schools, universities, childcare providers are like completely independent. It's a much smaller department, um, very heavily focused on relationships and on sort of dynamics of their conversation with the outside world and their stakeholders. And uh, like the staff sort of almost programmed by the system to think very much about sort of, yeah, what is it, what, communications, narrative, but also, but also sort of uh, conversations and how, how sort of structures our relationships with an independent set of entities rather than, you know, what we can definitely deliver. It's a very different view of kind of what was possible because their delivery mechanism was completely different and that bred a different kind of, kind of culture.
So it's a very long-winded answer to that question, I'm afraid. Sorry, but there's, there's a few things, there's no, a few things no. to throw out there. I think you raised something which allows us to segue into some other questions, which is, you know, this, this issue of delivery of feedback um, and, and how that's incorporated. So a, a lot of the students are, they're asking about um, how, uh, how do you have uh, feedback brought into the bureaucratic system? Um, and, uh, you know, is it, you know, and then with that, how do you bring about changes and improvements in uh, in behavior uh in in operations and then um and with that um uh how do you communicate to to voters how do you change culture how does government engage in that process and how honest can it be and how does it gauge it as you go along uh so that's that's some questions that are there yeah uh, there's several different things in that, so I probably won't try and do them all at once. Um, so picking up the first one about feedback and sort of feedback into the bureaucracy and how do you get this. Um, now, I, I think at the moment, in my experience, government is generally pretty bad at doing this. Um, and uh, there's sort of, I, I mean, there's sort of obvious reason in some way that um, yeah, if, if I was in, the, you know, I was in the Ministry of Justice uh, in charge of, yeah, criminal procedure and sentencing and so on. Now, uh, what happens in a, you know, in Woolwich Crown Court on a Tuesday morning, um, yeah, I, I, I never get to hear that. Or I, might hear, I might hear it anecdotally, because I happen to talk to the judge who was sitting there, they have to be on a panel with, you know, where they feed information to the ministry. Or it pops up, you know, it's one part of some massive sort of set of data that we're, we're trying to gather to work out what is going on in the court system. But the, the, um, the, the, the chain of sort of feedback from what's going on in Woolwich Crown Court to me as Director of Criminal Justice Policy is, is enormous. And actually the information I get probably isn't all that helpful because um, what I'm trying to sort of solve for as the, um, that person in the ministry, it, it, it kind of large macro policy questions and budget decisions and the sort of granular feedback doesn't, doesn't always work. So, and I think a large part of the problem here is, is the, again, particularly in the UK context, is the over-centralisation of a lot of what we do in government. But actually, the most useful feedback and the feedback that makes a difference is real-time or near real-time information on what is going on. Is something working? Is something not working? And the people who can adjust to that is the court manager of Woolwich Crown Court, not me running the Ministry of Justice, or perhaps it's even the, you know, it, or it's the judge or the, you know, whoever's actually in charge of changing something. If, if they know, like yesterday, this stuff happened, it didn't work that well. The day before we tried a different process for you know, calling up the witnesses and actually it was more efficient, right, we'll do the thing we did yesterday rather than the thing we did, did today. And I, I think government should invest quite a lot more in ensuring that the people who are making decisions every day that affect members of the public in terms of service delivery have really good quality, quick information about what is going on in their, in their services. Um, and doing that enables continuous improvement by those professionals at the front line who are running courts, running job centres, teaching, police officers, whatever it is. And that kind of feedback is actually probably more important a lot of the time than uh, a lot of sort of large scale evaluations that might land on my desk in Whitehall after two years, which tell you the policy which we've scrapped already because the minister's changed. It was kind of not very good. Um, so so, so I, I, I sort of argued that we should have a, a shift of resource from evaluate massive long-term evaluations of big central policy initiatives to ensuring that teachers, police officers, people in the welfare office 
have really good data on what happened yesterday and is happening today and enables them to, to change what they do. So that's, um, that's a bit of my question answer on the feedback feedback question. And the second part of the question I think was about voters. And what was yes, that? communicating. Uh, how, do, how do you effectively communicate um, with society, with the, with the population? And, and as a result of that, then um, not only have that issue of feedback, but also um, convey culture. Because one of the things that you point out in the book is the role of government in molding, shaping, conveying culture. And there are many techniques in government now, such as nudge and the you know, behavioral insights unit that really try to have that impact on, on, on the population and how effective and honest can they be? Yeah, and this is an interesting one. And I'm, I'm not a communications professional or expert at all. And so, you know, there are many people out there who understand this a lot better than, than I do. Um, but yeah, I think the crucial point is when you've landed on, I, I think um, one of the most important things government can do, and in fact, crucially, one of the things that government does, whether it tries to do or not, government can't help but do, is mould culture of the society that the government's operating in. If you think about the fact that, um, you know, in a modernised democracy, the government is spending 30, 40, 50% of GDP um, and sort of dominating the news agenda, you can't help but have a big impact on the whole set of, sort of cultural norms and values in that society. So my, my sort of first point is I think the government should do that consciously rather than uh, sort of doing it by accident. Um, and I think government's not always very good at thinking about the, the impact on cultural norms of, of what, they, what they do. In terms of the techniques and approaches, it's interesting you highlight the, the nudge and behavioural insight stuff. Now, I, I have enormous respect for the, the behavioural insight team, and I know very well some of the people who, who run it, and I've actually talked through some of the stuff in my book with them. But I think what the behavioural insight work is, is not so much about changing culture, because a lot of the successes of that kind of approach have actually been quite micro. They've been, been very, very specific things about um, there's the famous ones where they change the way you wrote a letter to someone saying they were late with their tax payment and they sort of massively increased the rate at which people paid the tax on time and, and this kind of thing which it, it is yeah it's, it, the the pay the cost benefit payoff of doing that stuff is like gigantic for, for lots of bits of government and it's incredibly important i don't think that really gets into affecting culture that just affects the way someone you know someone literally just sort of is more slightly more likely to pay, 10 percent more likely to pay their tax on time i, I think that the the stuff that government does that affects culture and values is some of the sort of uh, more symbolic, higher profile, um, larger scale sort of sort of communications stuff. Um, and I talk a bit, a bit in the book sort of um, about uh, the post-Soviet experience and how um, sort of arguments and policy around kind of history and what monuments we venerate and what we don't and how we teach history and how we talk about our sort of how we talk about the country that we now have, in some cases a new country, because of the independence of that part of the world, became sort of incredibly political and important and you know, sort of caused riots in, in some countries and this sort of thing. But governments actually have a, that, that sort of shaping a whole sort of social narrative. Actually, governments do that all the time, whether they mean to or not. And actually, I think it's really, really important that they think about it and also honest about the fact that that's something that they, they do. I think governments are often, a bit, we're, often we're often wary of talking about the role of government in shaping a sort of culture and national story, symbols, myths, those kind of things. But actually, that stuff has a real, that has a real impact. And, and crucially, that's something that central government can actually do. Whereas in contrast to what I was talking about earlier, actually, so much stuff that government wants to deal with, but actually the decisions that matter are all taken much further down the chain. And it's 
the, the lever to pull is very hard for you know you can change a education policy but actually if the teachers don't like it and don't implement it properly it won't have any impact but some of this stuff about shaping tone narrative culture symbols central government can do that directly uh, and actually what's why it's quite important i think and in terms of that um and that ability for government to move those those macro variables um how does culture and values um changing by government ensure that we don't shift too far away from classic liberal market systems uh, in, in, in an era in which those, those traditional values, which very much the post-war consensus, are under more and more uh, attack um, and, and keep that in place while also balancing, especially in the UK context, um, a, a, a desire for greater devolution, for greater local autonomy, um, for a more regional approach to solving problems, uh, which could give way to this more myopic view of, of solving problems as opposed to seeing the, the capabilities of, of, of organized government as created over the decades to, you know, really move the dial when uh, big problems need to be solved. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the sort of critically tricky bits actually because you're right there are some problems that are so big and urgent that a central government machine does need to try and solve them, and uh, greater local autonomy and decentralization won't quite get there and you know we've had a really interesting illustration of this recently around what's going on with a you know large global pandemic uh, what what do how have different countries respond to this and what 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 government capabilities do you need to, to deal with it and is the current situation fit for purpose? And I, I think what what I, th I think it illustrates really, really well actually in the UK that there are some bits of the UK's COVID response that have been very good, and some bits that, in my view, have been pretty poor. And some of that has been to do with the wrong levels of government trying to do the wrong things, or the right levels of government trying to do the right things. So the UK, as I said, the UK government is pretty centralised, uh, and I'm sort of putting aside the kind of Wales, Northern Ireland devolution for a minute, but it's, it's still, still slightly relevant here. And th th there are some things, um, because the delivery system is really simple, that actually a highly centralised approach can be, can be very, very effective. Uh, and one example of this in the UK in the COVID situation at the moment is um, the, the uh, payment of um, the furlough payments for, for staff, for, so firms that put their workers on, on furlough, the government agrees to pick up their wages during the pandemic. Um, it is, it's not been talked about that much, but it's been unbelievable success. I mean, the HMRC turned around the kind of on to online system to make that happen in hardly any time at all. It's been used by millions and millions and millions of people across the country. And as far as I can gather from and quite a few organisations I invested in my current uh, role have used the fellow scheme, it's basically worked. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a sort of unspoken triumph of the British state. They managed to put that in place as so basically the government pay like relations salaries in no time at all. And that's something where actually a, it's, it's a very simple transaction. You, know, you have one portal, uh, there's one scheme, and every, every firm is treated the same. And so it's, it's quite a linear, neat thing. And then a centralised approach works, works very well. Um, I think what you've seen in other bits of the UK's response is that the and you know, public health experts, I'm sure there were some on this call, but they have much more sophisticated understanding of this than I do. But my, my sense of the government's approach to test and trace program is the attempt to run that in a very centralized way has been highly problematic. It's not able to take account of the nuances of the need, the fact that 
what you need to do to trace contacts of a positive test and provide a successful test of testing service in rural Northumberland is completely different from what it is in inner city Oldham as it is in you know, County Armagh or wherever. Um, and the, um, the sense I get from the bit I've read about this and talking to a few people who work in that space is that um, the inability to respond to actually different local cultures and local contexts um, in that sense has been really problematic. And that's where you see a highly centralised um, state not being able to deal, dealing with a local adjustment to culture and values has been, has been a, a bit of a problem, actually. Um, there was a point, so to leap back, so, so that's what, well, leap back to another point you've mentioned in your, your question about the kind of post-war liberal consensus and, and so on. I think um, there is, this gets into kind of sort of political theory stuff, which again is probably a bit outside my, my comfort zone, but there is that sort of debate, isn't there, about whether um, liberalism is value neutral or actually uh, is there a value of uh, value of liberalism itself which is being sort of articulated and advocated for um, and it may be that the role of government potentially in a sort of liberal democratic system is to support some of the values culture and practices that enable liberal democracy to exist because it's not a, a neutral thing you have to have people I think we're you know seeing bits of this perhaps in some of the debates in the US recently if pe people need to uh, conduct politics, government and public life in a certain way, otherwise some of the assumptions that underpin liberal democracy can start to fray a little bit. Um, I say that, again, that's probably getting slightly outside my area of expertise, but that's um, something we're thinking about. Thanks. Um, I think that really helps things uh, move along. There are some very interesting questions coming from the students now, looking at what, what really works, what, what actually gets the attention in the political system uh, to change things? Uh, how would you go about to do that? Um, mm. is, it, is it lobbying? Is it the civil service? Is it external advisors? Um, is it ginger groups? You know, how do you actually get people to sit up and do something? And is that part of something that is evolving into something which goes one step further than that and actually goes into co-production of policy. So not just, you know, uh, acting as, as, as a force to, to, to generate change, but it becomes a participant in that change. And have you had any experience of that? Right, yeah, this is, this is a good one. Um, I, in terms of what works, um, the, the slightly depressing thing, or slightly depressing thing from the point of view of, you know, external advocate groups or people who want to influence government, is that the most important thing to remember, I think, is that it is actually pretty random. Um, and government uh, doesn't move and doesn't make policy in a kind of logical, repeatable way. Um, you know, the, the policy cycle diagrams you'll see in textbooks or um, sort of description models of the policy process. Most, in my experience, and I've looked at a lot of them, most of them work a bit sometimes, but government is pretty chaotic and pretty random because a lot of stuff and there's various reasons for that i mean partly because uh, events drive so much of what happens in politics and policies sort of the, the vagaries of the outside world and personalities as i illustrated earlier with my example of the two ministers drive a lot of stuff and it's just an enormously complex system and you know as our uh, colleagues in the biology faculties would say if you have a you know an extremely complex constantly evolving system, it will tend to change in non-linear, unpredictable ways where you get sort of equilibria and then sudden random bursts of change and then a new equilibrium. 
which may be sort of slightly orthogonal to the, to the original one. And I think the policy system, it's sort of an analogy I sort of often use to describe the policy system, it sort of works a bit like that, like a sort of ecosystem in a rainforest, and like which, which things come and go and change it, it is a bit random and hard to predict. And so I think we need to all sort of remember that and not sort of, if, you know, if we are working in a sort of advocacy group or something, not beat ourselves up and we haven't had the policy change we've been desperate for after a year because actually things just, just don't always work like that. So that's, that's not the negative bit. However, that's not a very useful answer for people. So I'll, I'll try and say some more helpful and positive things. Um, I, I mean, one part I would say is, um, I think in my experience of working different issues, the dynamics of different policy issues are very, very different. Um, and uh, where different tools or approaches or institutions have influence varies wildly across the system. And I'm sure when you think, and this is, I'm thinking about UK context here, and I'm sure this is there's like a whole other set of variations in, in other political systems which don't work like the Westminster one does. So it's a whole persuade of things. So, um, I, mean, I mean, to give it, one of the interesting things is, is about how politicised an issue is, actually, because so, so some issues are, are extremely political and they are you know, always front page of the newspaper, they're always top of the agenda for, for ministers. So some things like, um, you know, I know, income tax rates would be like that, it's enormously political, or a uh, good example in the UK would be land use planning, and like where can you build houses and where can't you build houses, essentially. Enormously political, because everyone cares about it, political parties have very strong views about it, it, it becomes the crux of the debate. And actually, those very, very political issues are often the hardest to influence because um, decisions on those will always be made by, often be made by a pretty small number of people, often very centralised in, in government, um, will often be sort of pinned down in kind of party ideology and dogma for quite long periods because they sort of become part of the identity of a sort of particular wing of a party or a whole party. Um, and, and, and sort of positions will be quite concretized if you like around there so then the opportunity to change are more around the edges rather than in the core of the policy and if uh, if, if your policy you care about is something that is highly politicized and the party that's currently in power the minister's currently in power just doesn't share your view of the world on that policy because you're on the wrong side of the political divide then it's gonna be very difficult to get very far i think there are a whole, whole other areas where actually it's just much less political and actually um different, um, uh, there'll be open, much more openness to different different ideas um, and, and different strategies which can make progress. Uh, and I think one of your choices then as a sort of advocacy group, that's what we're talking about, is, is whether you adopt a sort of insider or outsider strategy, um, by which I mean, do you try and say, come up with ideas and policies that are sort of sort of in tune with the government's broad, broad direction, but you want to kind of nudge it a bit over here? Or do you, and then you adopt a strategy of kind of present, yeah, having meetings, presenting research papers, sort of trying to work things, work things through. And then an outside strategy is much more about sort of media pressure, parliamentary pressure, trying to sort of force a change. And I mean, example of this, I mean, when I was in the Ministry of Justice, we had, I worked a lot with the, um, the prison reform or criminal justice reform kind of charities and NGOs. And you had some that adopted an insider strategy and some that adopted a, a sort of outsider, outsider strategy. Um, in that context at that time, I think the insider strategy ones were probably more successful because they managed to ask some things that were sort of politically possible and they probably got a few of them, got a few of them done. Whereas the political leadership at the time was quite happy just to have a row with the outsider organizations. And if they if there were some you know people with placards or some press releases or 
things going on saying you're doing this outrageous stuff that was a fight they were quite fair to have and didn't really care about the political consequences of it um, but that was a, that's an example of that context. there'd be other contexts where actually a more confrontational strategy is, can actually make a difference and, and make, make an impact and this i think leads into uh, what is a very interesting question from one of our students um, you mentioned a lot of spaces where people uh, will have encounters with elements of government have deep frustrations and want things to get done and don't see it getting done and uh, this gets to this question of how do you balance the need for a liberal democracy to be democratic and accountable, uh, but at the same time to cut through the density of bureaucracy and red tape to get things done. Um, and, and with that, maintain policy legitimacy uh, at all times. And uh, I know from even your own experience that you, you encountered as, as a civil servant, um, the, the poll tax riots where that legitimacy uh, broke down very quickly. Um, so how do, you, how, how do you balance this need to be both uh, efficient, uh, but also legitimate and, and democratic? Yeah, okay. Um, there's a lot in there. So uh, sort of pick me up if I don't cover all of it. I, I, the the poll tax example, as we say, I wasn't when I was a civil servant, actually it was before, before then, but it was sort of, uh, an issue that always resonated with me. I think w w the interesting thing about the failure of that policy, which did largely or in a, to a large degree fail on legitimacy grounds, was um, it, it offended a sort of basic sense of fairness and what was appropriate, I think. And it's something very similar you see in the last week or so with the A-level results fiasco, which is that um, uh, just, just on a sort of basic level to the man in the street, when you kind of explained what this was, which is that you know, students got marked partly based on what happened to their school before rather than anything to do with their own People say, well, that's just not fair. That isn't what the qualification system in this country is. That's not legitimate. We don't, we don't sort of, yeah, you could feel a lot of that in a lot of the comment. I just don't really accept that that's, that was what this system is for. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, so there's sort of a, a, a sort of, un, and this is why it's value driven, because all those assumptions about what is fair, what is appropriate, what, what is a qualification system for, those are completely values based and also culture and context specific. Uh, and what we in the UK in 2020 think of as, the point and the legitimate nature of their qualification system is completely different in another context, another culture, and another, another time. So, so, that, so that's why legitimacy is so tied up with cultural values, they're ultimately what we see as legitimacy. Um, then you asked this question about the trade-off with sort of dem democratic accountability and efficiency and legitimacy. Um, and I think Democratic accountability is, is a funny one. I talk about this a bit in the book because, again, um, it, is, it is more random than we'd like to think. Uh, and um, I, I go into some debate depth in the book about uh, how people actually make political choices, um, how voting actually affects how, how people decide how to vote, and therefore what that means for to, to what extent the democratic process actually manages to hold politicians accountable. And I sort of conclude that for individual policies or delivery of individual services, or even sort of group, large groups of policies or services, actually it doesn't really, democratic accountability through the ballot box at least, doesn't really work properly because people don't uh, vote according to, according to those things. Um, so, so I think with accountability, I'm again sort of quite interested in more decentralized forms of accountability. Uh, and actually, again, link back to what I said before about the availability of data and feedback about what's going on, but actually 
and if I'm a citizen, I think it's sometimes possibly more useful for me if my, you know, the service I get at my GP practice is general practice, doctor's practice is rubbish. Um, I mean, I think there's not, it actually doesn't really make sense for me to try and hold the Secretary of State for Health accountable for that. What can we set up that enables me to have a, a, a dialogue as a kind of informed consumer and citizen with the people who actually could affect that, as you who probably run it, run it um, day to day on the ground. Now, the Secretary of State for Health needs to be accountable for the overall budget for the health service, which may be insufficient or, or directed in totally the wrong way. Um, but actually, from an individual citizen, it's quite hard to hold uh, hold, hold the government to account account for that. You, you need other mechanisms. That's where sort of outside groups, uh, organised professional bodies, and other sort of players in the policy system sort of come much more much more into play. And, and, it's, and this again links back to one of the other things that I think you said in uh, questions around this idea about co-production and to what extent can government uh, do get into that and I think this is funny this has been a, a sort of a buzz phrase in policymaking for a long time we need to do more co-production of services and, and I remember when I was back in the primary strategy we got very into sort of thinking about how we could do this and I don't think we ever got very far probably because there was something slightly ironic about trying to think about how you co-produce services when we were actually a bunch of people sitting in an office in Whitehall which is the last place you're going to co-produce any public services from um, but, but I think there's something, it goes to the heart of something, I, I think it's about what is the proper role of central government? And given that accountability often, particularly for service delivery, doesn't work very well, actually central government shouldn't be spending its time specifying the details of how services are delivered. I think central government needs to set the context, and that's the budget context, the legal context, but actually crucially the cultural and the dialogue, um, debate and values-based context, which enables those delivering the service to deliver them as well as possible in the most efficient way possible and in a way that citizens can benefit from. Uh, so I, I think government, I think particularly in the UK, government often tries to do far too much and to reach sort of, tries to reach far too far down value chain. You've got too many people in Whitehall, like I used to be, sort of worrying about how we're setting up the delivery of this service. Well, that, that shouldn't be what we're doing. We should be trying to set up a, a system of money, laws, rhetoric, symbols, assumptions, ways of thinking that enables people who actually can make decisions about how to run the service get on and do it and do it really, really well and, and then they will then to have a direct accountability ratio assistance so you can say well this was great this wasn't great okay i mean uh, that, that that's a very interesting re response and I, I think um um uh professor carmel has has reminded me to to just possibly uh, have you Explain a little bit further the idea of the A levels uh, debacle and and what that was uh, for since many of the students are not English. Um, of course. And um, within that context, I think you you mentioned this this wonderful phrase of fairness uh, and legitimacy as as sort of coming together. Um, and I mean, there's the 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 famous statement uh, by John Rawls of justice as fairness. Um, so where in that context does this idea of fairness, these normative concepts of justice and fairness, how do they interact uh, after explaining what A-levels are to everybody else? Yes, I, 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 do, uh, I do apologize to um, non-UK non um, listeners uh, to, to miss that out. So, um, so the A-level is the uh, major, the main 18-year-old school leaving qualification in England and Wales. Uh, and it is particularly important because it determines which university uh, you can access. Uh, it's worth, again, giving the sort of cultural context, if you like, that um, British higher education is extremely hierarchical uh, and it is um, 
very desirable and important to your future prospects to get into the, the best universities and sort of a gradation or league tables. And uh, so your, your precise um, uh, grades you receive in your A-level at 18 is, is extremely important. Uh, and you know, will you get into one of these highly competitive universities or not? Now, uh, this year, um, the uh, pandemic situation meant it wasn't possible for students to sit their A-level exams because the exams were due to be held in May, essentially, um, right in the middle of the, the pandemic. So you clearly couldn't have hundreds of people in uh, small, you know, small spaces for three hours writing history or maths papers. So uh, what, what the, um, the government did, and there's currently a large row about which bit of government is responsible for this, which says a whole load of other things about accountability, but there you go, um, is the government decided to use a, uh, a sort of way of generating grades that essentially um, got uh, each school to assess what grade they thought a pupil would get uh, and then crucially rank all of those so if, if I'm so I, I'm teaching you know, maths in school x I've got uh, 10 students I think deserve an a grade top grade or a star top grade isn't it um, but I, I have to rank those uh, in order so one to ten then all those numbers go into a sort of central uh, thing run by the exam regulator which applied a mathematical formula based on the prior performance of my school. So if in the past in maths over the last sort of five years, we tended to get five people getting an A star, then the top five of my A star predictions would probably get it this time. So students were getting a grade based on the teacher's assessment of how they would have done, but crucially heavily affected by the prior performance of pupils in that subject at their school, um, which had this sort of bizarre result that um, people particularly were disadvantaged if they were a high performing student, a very able student at a school that historically had not been so high performing because then they were sort of being ground down to the average of previous years, you see what I mean? Uh, and this caused this enormous row and the government had to back down and eventually give people the grades predicted by their schools. Um, and so, so that, that was the, the fiasco. Uh, as I wrote on a sort of blog about this recently, it raised a number of interesting things about culture and values. One about this point about fairness, which I'll talk about in a minute. Another one actually about using a sort of how this, this sort of centralized data crunching exercise was not sufficiently sensitive at all to the different nuances of different schools' contexts. And it meant it was profoundly unfair to certain types of schools, certain types of pupils, because it wasn't attuned to the local setting. And again, sort of local sort of assumptions and what was fair and valuable at different, different levels. Um, and it's interesting also, it says a whole lot of other stuff about accountability that the um, permanent civil servant of the Department of Education has left, but the Secretary of State has not. But that's a, um, another debate um, to be had about accountability. But back on the point about fairness, I think the, um, uh, the famous John Rawls phrase is, is right at the heart of this, actually, because um, fairness, being, being something being seen to be fair, being seen to be done in a fair way, I think is absolutely critical to legitimacy of a policy in, in a modern sort of, in a sort of democratic society. Clearly, you know, in a in an, uh, medieval society, um, legitimacy was because the king said it was so, or the queen, but nearly always the king, said, said that's what it was, and that, that's what legitimacy was, because there's a whole value system around the monarch, you know, getting orders from God, whatever it was. You know, given that we're, we're not in that world anymore, we're now in Western Europe in 2020, um, legitimacy has to be grounded in a sense that even if I don't agree with the result, it's been done in a fair way. I think that's pretty, uh, that's pretty crucial. And policies that fall foul of legitimacy are where the, the process has been seen to be unreasonable and unfair, and people really don't like that. Um, and governments, I think, need to remember 
that the outcome of a policy is valuable, yes, but how you got there is also valuable. And you can have two policy outcomes, and one of them has been got you've got there in a sort of arbitrary and bizarre and unreasonable way, and you get the same outcome through a fair, open, and transparent process, and that's got the legitimacy, and the other one hasn't. I think that is so. Yeah, I think again, the procedural justice stuff does matter. So I think this is a good. Uh point to really talk because we are talking about this normative concept of fairness which not everybody has the same idea of what's fair and what's not and this is at the core of something which we have a really interesting question about legitimacy and policy and can it actually continue in a highly politically polarized society um, and how do policymakers reconcile these differences these very deep cleavages which are now being created examples being Brexit, the use of wedge issues. And it goes to one of the main points I found in your book is, the, is this importance of trust. Uh, and that if you have effective government systems of the modern type of government we have, trust is at its very core. Um, and if it's not there, you can't actually build the necessary foundations uh, for the modern state. So maybe perhaps you, you, you can talk about how do, we, how, do, how do we deal with that? How do we have this addressing of these culture and values? And then what, in your view, from your experiences, the way to sort of mend these cleavages or, 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 or reduce their, their, their starkness that undermines the yeah, system? I, I, I think, I, mean, I, think yeah, I, don't, I really don't have the answer to this stuff. This is, this is very, very difficult and important stuff and a very important question um whoever, whoever raised it because ultimately as i sort of say in part of the book one of the sort of purposes of our democratic system is to find a way of resolving value disputes um, normative disputes about what what what's what, what's what is valuable what is good what is fair what is appropriate in a way that doesn't involve kind of killing people um which was you know the way you used to do it back 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 in back in the old days um but there is a you run into a problem where People care more about um, uh, the, the, um, the sort of uh, potential victory of their view of their normative view than they do about the continuing maintenance of the fair process. So um, it, you partly you partly need at least all elite groups, if not everyone, to think that we need to preserve the due process because although we might win this we might win this round by breaking the process. We know in the future we might rely on the process to somewhat stop someone else winning around and doing something we don't like. Um, and I think the more polarised society gets around sharply normative views of the world, the less people are going to care about the process and more they're going to care about winning on, the, on this occasion. And that's highly problematic. Um, I think an interesting sort of institutional example of this, which, which I'm always intrigued about, is the debate you see in the US about filibuster in the Senate, which is always... Uh, People may or may not know how much you know about the US senatorial system, where um, a, a, a minority of senators can, can block something from, from coming in. It's seen as sort of protection against kind of radical change of overreach by governing majority. And there's been a lot of debate, uh, and there's a lot of debate going on at the moment about uh, should, particularly, I think, if the Democrats were, were to win a majority in the Senate in November, but possibly Republicans might do as well, whether you'd get rid of that filibuster so you can sort of push through a whole load of your agenda. Um, but then the interesting question is, is that, a, is that a, a, a safeguard that you might want in the future when someone else is in charge and, and, and there's something about the process, which is very well. I was all 
the syllabus is the whole question of whether it's in itself legitimate and all sorts of other things. But it's just an example of a kind of where, where uh, yeah, are, are you prioritizing maintaining process for long term or, or, or short term success? Anyway, and back on the cleavage thing, how you manage it, I think the example I talk about in the book, which I think is a really definitely some positive example, is a very interesting one, is um, what happened in Ireland with the referendum that was around changing the abortion laws. Uh, clearly, that is an enormously evocative, potentially wedge issue, really rooted in deep-seated religious values. Um, and yeah, it, it wasn't easy and it was highly controversial, but there's very, this very interesting process of um, prior discussion in a very sort of structured, deliberative way involving quite a lot of Irish citizens about you know, how the question should be framed, what exactly should be, should be involved, um, you know, the different, the different ways that could have been approached and, uh, and it's it done this quite open, deliberative way, which then, you know, designed what the question should be and a whole lot of stuff around it. And yeah, and it wasn't easy and it was still, you know, a highly uh, you know, politicised and difficult process. But I, I think if you want an example of where a country managed a political debate about something that's very highly normative, very values driven, very difficult in a way that as a non-Irish person, what I could see from the outside and reading about it and talking to some people who are a bit involved a little bit was really quite impressive. So I think it's something we could all learn from some of that. Okay, um, I, I think that's a, that, that, that is a good example. I, I myself was heavily involved in, in the legislation for that uh, when I was working in the Oireachtas, um, which is the Irish Parliament. Hmm. So, um, and I think that's, that, that's a good point to sort of look at this question of one of the students has, has presented, which is this idea of voters making decisions on the basis of values, uh, but also the problem about how, how do parties actually transmit what those values mean in terms of policies? Um, and, you know, how do people then decide on the basis of that? And with that context, is it something that, in your experience, that political parties, do they have the ability to accurately communicate what the policies will be based upon their values or what will guide those, those policies due to their values? And in the case of the Southern Irish debate you mentioned, um, it was very clear that the parties involved very accurately communicated at every point in the way. Yeah. Uh, about what the yeah. final policies would be and where there were gaps, what the overarching basic principles will be of what will happen. So if we don't have a perfect answer. Yeah, we do know this is yeah. how we're going to think about it and not in another way. And is there that, examples yeah. in the UK of this that you can that's, think That's about? really interesting um, because I, I suppose what's interesting about that is it, it was a, there was a probably a, much and then you'll you will know more about it than me but my sense is there's much more an almost abnormal level of attention about what parties thought on a particular issue for a sustained period of time in a way that you will tend not to get because unless you have a big high profile issue like that and um, with, with a referendum and the rest of it um it, it just isn't that level of focus and sort of uh, you know need for a party to craft a quite carefully calibrated position and consistently get it across to the, to the voters uh, uh, sort of doesn't usually happen because you know there's just too much going on too much noise and, and, and uh, too much fuss and, and I think um, I think part of my point on some of this stuff is that I think the political parties actually sort of 
don't really communicate very well and also don't need to communicate what their individual policies are. And I, I give the example in, in the book of um, at uh, the 2017 election, the, the Labour Party in the UK's manifesto was 127 pages long or something. This is a vast list of policies. And I'm sure they were never naive enough to think that pretty much anyone would understand what all these policies were. Even like people like me who like, really care about politics, I wouldn't have had a clue about half of them. And, and, and so then policies become partly aware of managing various internal parties of divisions, which a lot of it was in that, in that case. And then, and this is sort of some stuff about, what's wrong with about symbols, that policies become a vehicle for party conveying in a sort of symbolic way, broadly the kind of thing we would do. This is roughly where we, this is sort of how we view the world, this is the kind of people we are, the kind of values we've got, and that's what you're going to vote for. And that's, that's the function I think policies tend to perform in the political debate, rather than you know, okay, if we're elected, we will do these 28 things because, you know, events happen. The, the, the 28 things will never get done. Or even if they do get done, they won't have the impact you think they will. So, so the, 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 the role that policy plays in political debate is not a commitment to a policy. It is a uh, part of building a narrative about the kind of values and culture that we stand for as a group of people who are this party, and therefore you please vote for us. Which then has all the implications for accountability that, that, that I talked about. Does that, does that get to the question or? That, that gets to the question. And I think it really gets to, um, I think a very important uh, question, which, which we just received about what then becomes the, the value and culture communicated by the government? Because if one party has one narrative of, of, of values, uh, which translates into policy, another party has almost a complete opposite approach to that. Um, and then one comes in and out of government. How does how does government and how does the civil service then maintain coherence and consistency um, and that red thread uh, over time? Because if a civil servant's yeah. career is 25, 30 years, he's going to have several governments uh, between beginning to end. And um, I'm always reminded of a uh, scene in, in the Yes Minister TV show from the 80s in which Sir Humphrey declares, yes, I'd be, you know, an ardent nationalizer, an ardent privatizer, uh, an ardent abolitionist of grammar schools, an ardent retentionist. Um, and if I tried to do this, I would have gone categorically insane. So I will, how did and his articulation, of course, is I maintain the administrative efficiency of all of this, regardless of the position. Yeah. But how did you and how does the government now, uh, with all of these policies, with all these narratives and the way it's communicated, how does it maintain coherency? How does it communicate what is the fundamental British values and systems of government uh, over time, above Tory, Labour, Lib Dem? Um. That is also a good question. I, I think there's um, there's a couple of things there. I think. I mean, what one bit is that um, I think an awful lot of what government does a lot of the time is not that relevant to the kind of political values narrative about this is what it means to be a Conservative Party or this is what it means to be a Labour Party, and, and what what drives people's perceptions of the values held by the political parties. It is, it is only a pretty small part of what, what government does. And sort of vast, and this is going back a little bit to what I said earlier about some policies are very politicized and some are not. And the 
policies that are very politicised are some of the ones particularly that convey a message about where a party stands on kind of big values-based questions of the day and what those are for sort of shifts over time it, you know it, it, it used to be um you know it was the corn laws back in 19th century england to sort of a rule about tariffs on corn trade for people who don't know about it and and that's although that was it was important in practical terms it was, it was incredibly important to so kind of a symbol a very values-based thing about what, what the future of the country was and so at any given time there are a few policies that kind of operate in that kind of highly politicized space of determining uh, what people um, think values are and, and part of political leadership is trying to sort of shape that and you're trying to uh, what politicians are trying to sort of wrestle um, their party and, and the set of issues that become highly politicized and defining the political choice of and things that are advantageous to them then there's loads of what government does and loads of policy and those decisions that ministers are making that is never really going to touch the sides of whether people uh, how people see what the current party um, in office stands for um, you know, delivering all, all sorts of things across the whole range of government policy and so a lot of policy is not particularly driven by you know the party's narrative about its values it will be driven by by the system and what it's needed what expectations are from lobby groups what the individual minister wants uh yeah just practical things like have we got the money um all, all, all this kind of slightly more prosaic stuff so i, I think it, and part of your question about what's the kind of continuity of the british state beyond the politics is sort of in that really is that quite a lot of stuff kind of can, it, 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 it has its own dynamic which is not just driven by the politics and, and that is where yes outside interest groups or professional bodies or civil society will actually have a, a bigger role to play and more likely to be sort of part of the conversation of what this what this is all about um so i, I mean i think yeah to give a bit of an example from one of my uh time ministry of justice that now we sort of sentencing and criminal and so there were a few things that were very, very political. So, so you know, sentences that's sort of very serious crimes is a highly political thing. Like, you know, you want to send a message that we're very tough on crime. And that is a kind of quite values-driven thing. It's very political, very not very amenable to influence from anyone else. Um, when you're dealing with, it was a very different story. When you're dealing with uh, uh, young offenders or particularly female offenders uh, who, for cultural reasons, um, less seen, it seems less threatening, less as less of a sort of way of making a point about the values you stand for and then actually the debate was completely different was much more openness to ideas from yeah civil society organizations or pressure groups or um other, other bits of government that had different ways of doing things and you had this sort of rather different way of making policy in the, in the less less politicized stuff because it was i guess everyone recognized that whether or not someone voted for party a or party b was just never going to be affected by that policy it didn't have the salience it was just never going to touch the sides uh, for anyone, any meaningful sense of voters. One of the questions that we have at the coming up right now is this issue of of actually change and progress, and and actually you know fundamentally changing how how policy is is done, uh, and and your experience with that. And I know in your book you bring up um, the issue of modernizing government, the report from 1999. Uh, and which really did change a lot of how people thought about government. Uh, and you cite recent work on the politics of evidence-based policymaking, this move towards an evidence-based, evidence-informed policy approach. Where in that experience do you see the, the, the impetus, the force, the drive to actually seriously change things, to make structural breaks with the past? Uh, and re renew and revive how government is done and what government achieves. 
And in that context, how do you respond to the 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 the, the battle cry of of Dominic Cummings and his desire for quote unquote misfits and weirdos uh, in the halls of central government to achieve decentralization, government renewal, and um, a culture of achievement uh, in policymaking. Uh, I, I know I, there I, I, was a lot of I, I was wondering when we would get to get on to Dominic Cummings. I knew it would happen <laughs> at some point. Um, uh, so so um, uh, a couple of things. I mean, firstly, my, my, the, the modernizing government white paper, which was launched just as I became a civil servant, just, just around, that, around that time, um, I, I'd been sort of about a year and that came out. I think that's a really interesting example of some of this because I, I, I think. Uh, to, to an extent, that was in itself a kind of government trying to do something that was symbolic in conveying a message. I, I think um, the new Labour, you know, Tony Blair's government at that point, a big part of their kind of their image and, and, their, and the story they were trying to tell was around, they were very sort of modern and technocratic and they were sort of moving beyond, like they used to use this sort of language in there, moving beyond the old divisions of left or right, it's a different way of doing things. Uh, new Labour, New Britain, this sort of mo modernisation in a sort of slightly technocratic, apolitical sense, it was actually a sort of political statement. It was a weirdly using technocratic, apolitical tools like modernising government white papers, but actually it was, it was almost was a piece of rhetoric and a symbol. Um, and I think the, you know, were the dramatic changes in the way policy was made as a result of that white paper? No, I don't think there were. Um, I, I, and certainly talking to you know, people who then might sort of seniors and guys are junior civil servants at that point probably didn't feel it actually changed all that much. It created a few new structures and a few different things to experiment with, but did it radically change the way government worked? I'm not sure it did, but it, 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 was, it was as much part of a, it, as I've been saying a lot, it, it's an example of a policy. It was partly as a symbol as much as anything else. Um, on, on the current government approach, uh, and um, uh, Dominic Cummings and, and Michael Gaves, I, I think I, I would recommend to anyone who hasn't read it, reading Michael Gove's recent lecture, I think it's a Ditchley institution or Ditchley institution where he talks about the, the ideas of reforming central government. And I, I found it re this really interesting because uh, quite a few of the things they talk about are things that chime very well with what I think needs to be done in government. So greater decentralization, autonomy for the front line, uh, keeping civil servants in jobs for longer so they actually build better networks and understand what's going on, the more grounded the reality of trying to deliver in particular um, places, um, a, a clearer sense of accountability, including for political decision makers. And there's a whole set of things in that speech which um, actually chime with some of the things I, I say in my book. And the thing I find interesting is I worked directly with Michael Gove for some time um, in Ministry of Justice, and if you look at what the current government is doing uh, and some of the stuff that they're actually going through with, I'm not sure the reality quite matches the rhetoric. And I think there's a bit of a case here of should we, you know, do we do what I say or do what I do? So I think it's worth watching less the speeches and, re and less some of the stuff that Dominic Cummings says in his blogs and what changes in Whitehall are actually being made, which a lot of them look highly centralising and less tolerant of different views and different sources of advice than perhaps the previous model was, even though some of the rhetoric is in the opposite direction. So I think that will deserve a bit of watching over the next little while. Okay, and in, in terms of, of learning lessons and, and, and how you would uh, mentor somebody who was at an early stage in their career in the civil service, what would you, what would you say to them about 
um, how they learn from errors, how they evolve from policies that that were well intended but failed, and how to how to fail better uh, for as how many people describe it. Yeah, and I think I think government generally isn't very good at failing better um, or failing well because uh, the tendency, and this is partly linked to the accountability stuff, the tendency tends to be to double down on something and try and do it harder rather than decide it's, realize it's gone wrong. And as I've written in other places, I, I think government should do far more, far more small, should do far more small things and stop far more quickly when they don't appear to work um, than it's historically tended to do. Um, and I think part of it, part, and part of this is about honesty. I, I think um, we should get, and we've occasionally, a few ministers have occasionally done this, which has been pretty rare, where Minister should say, I'm trying three different things here. I know two of them aren't going to work. That is my intention, is to try, try some different things and, and some of them will not work and I will learn from that. And that is the entire point of my policy. And it's very rare you hear a government minister saying that. It, it does happen very occasionally. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was definitely a minister during the coalition period who did do something like that. And it sort of worked, I think. And there was a, a power put into a piece of legislation which basically enabled you to sort of flex bits of rules for short-term pilots. Like, it was very circumscribed, so you didn't sort of break the law, but you could say, you know, for a very short period, you could sort of disapply various rules and like pass the country to pilot something new. It was in a bit of welfare legislation, I've forgotten the detail now, but we should definitely have more of that kind of stuff. And uh, civil servants are not generally encouraged to pilot lots of whizzy new things because ministers are always going to be worried about being embarrassed. Um, so what I would say, I'm mentoring a civil servant, I'd say, yeah, try and do small things and learn from them. There's also something about um, a lot of policies don't work or don't happen, not because they're the wrong policy, because they're at the wrong time. Uh, and that, that's, that, that has been a, a, a frequent thing I've noticed in my career. There's something you've worked on, it's gone absolutely nowhere and completely been hopeless. And then it comes back and, and becomes a successful policy. An example of this one I would give is um, the uh, policy we now have in the UK for taxing um, soft drinks that have sugar content above a certain level with the aim of uh, both discouraging people from buying them and because they're very bad for you, and also particularly to make the manufacturers change the recipe for the drinks and use less sugar. And I remember when I was, it's quite a long time ago, I was in the cabinet office and some, a, a colleague of mine was working on a project in health and um, yeah, this idea was like one on a list of, sort of possible policies that the government might want to consider and somehow this got leaked to the press. So there's kind of almighty row with, you know, front page of the tabloid saying, government tells you what to drink, blah, 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 Mandy states, everything's a disaster. Um, and, and you know, nothing happened. And then you know, sort of 15 years later, that policy has been implemented and has been massively successful. We've taken sort of million, literally millions of tonnes of sugar out of the UK's diet um, through, through that policy. And it's a phenomenally successful policy. Um, so something there about, you know, the policy was, was, seen as, was definitely a bad policy at one point, but then because I think it was implemented a bit differently, the political context had changed a bit, um, a whole load of reasons that actually what was once a bad policy can become a good one. So I would say to your, your you know, source of time, theoretically mentoring is don't, don't just because a good, an idea sort of gets squashed or fails, don't, don't forget it because it's, it's time may well come. And, and I guess, um, you know, those that would have been in, in, in the Navy or, or, or around boats would, would, would know that there's a, a certain art to reading, reading the sea. Uh, much as reading the times for when policies will work and not work and risk tolerance amongst ministers. How would you, what advice would you give to, to this theoretically um, 
uh, student of yours in, in, in public policy on how to read the sea of policymaking? Yeah, the sea is a good one. I sometimes talk about it as a stream of kind of policy stuff that goes past, but the sea is also a good a good analogy. And um, well, I, I think I think what I say is that the um, uh, the sea sometimes gets stormy, and it's when when the storms happen that the biggest waves happen. Um, and it's definitely in times of urgency and crisis that the biggest changes can occur. Things that would have seemed impossible suddenly suddenly become possible, and sort of windows of opportunity open because of external crises. And that's when your policy idea that you've worked on really hard and is really, really good, but everyone's ignored it, suddenly becomes the flavor of the month. Um, I mean, I, I've given an example, which I think I, think I mentioned in the book. Um, I, I was talking to someone who, who works with one sort of, sort of big lobbying NGO, and they, they had this, sort of, this perfectly sensible, not especially sort of attract sexy or you know, high-profile policy that they um, had been trying to lobby for for, for years and never really, never really got anywhere. And then there's this sort of a big media event happened that was sort of tangentially related and created a big storm about that sort of kind of issue. And as a result, their policy got adopted by the government, not because their policy would actually solve the issue the media storm was about, because it, it wouldn't, it, it, it was something so different, but it made the government sound as if they were sort of responding to the right kind of issue. So suddenly, you know, it, it's that sort of thing, ministers, I need to say something on X because there's a crisis. Oh, here is something on X, which has been worked out by a very credible, lobby group who are, you know, technically sound and trusted and know what they're doing. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll now play that policy. It won't actually solve the crisis over here, but, you know, the media won't notice that. It means I'm doing something in the right area. So there's definitely something about how um, waves blow up and you can kind of use that opportunity to make, make things happen. And that's advice as much for external people working in the public, you know, to influence government from the outside as on, on the inside. And if one were to uh, think about, you know, going back to the university, what disciplines um, do people really need to have in, in, in their toolbox? Is it behavioral economics? Is it psychology? Is it marketing? Is it communications, law? Um, or, or should we just go back to good old Sir Humphrey and have a degree in classics? Um, <laughs> this, this is good. I, 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 I wrote something else uh, recently where I said that I, I think government needs to have uh, we've got the balance a bit wrong at the moment, uh, and, and I, I think government needs probably fewer lawyers and economists, and needs more anthropologists and psychologists, because I think we are we we spend a disproportionate amount of effort on working out the finer details of the cost benefits analysis of the policy, rather than working out how people on a you know particular kind of estate in a particular town are going to actually interact with it, which is where you get into all the anthropological type stuff. Uh, and, and similarly, psychology is linked to the kind of symbols, values, what, what resonates with people, how they respond to these kind of things, just where anthropology and psychology sort of cross over to each other. I, I think government is woefully underpowered understanding that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, some people on the political side, so uh, sort of political advisors, some people, some are not necessarily academically trained in those disciplines, but are quite good at some of that. But I think, yeah, I, I, I think about the sort of the expertise I had to call on when I was a senior civil servant. I had an awful lot of, I had a lot of economists and lawyers, most of them were extremely brilliant people, and I needed them. I'm not sure I ever had someone who really understood, actually, you're trying to tackle knife crime. Well, how actually, you know, how do people in gangs in East London think about knives? Or what, what, what messages make sense to them? How do they respond to a change in police tactics in their culture? Actually, no one was advised me on any of that. We, we, we weren't, weren't told that for it. So, so I think government needs to move the dial a bit and say more psychologists and anthropologists, I, I would advocate for and and the the final question of this evening uh which has been a thoroughly enjoyable one uh 
relates to this topic that is in your th runs throughout your book about subsidiarity of this relationship of the central relative to the 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 uh, the subnational. Um, how do you see that relationship developing in Britain? Will it improve now post Brexit? And do you think that ultimately the limitations of subsidiarity um, have been part of the reason why we have wound up in a Brexit circumstance uh, and that tensions continue to rise uh, between Scotland and, and the United Kingdom generally? Mm. Um, I mean, this is, again, is not uh, my area of expertise particularly, but I'll give you my, my thoughts. I mean, I think um, the, uh, the likely, my judgment would be the likelihood is that tensions between the constituent parts of the United Kingdom will increase as a result of Brexit, um, not least because um, powers being brought from Brussels to the UK level immediately triggers a conversation about which of those powers are controlled at the UK level, or which of those powers are then further devolved to Cardiff, Belfast, Edinburgh, or indeed to London, Manchester, Leeds, other places that have elected mayors. And that fight seems to already be starting, I think, from some of what I read, and you can see that that's getting worse and being a, an opportunity for, uh, particularly for Scottish National Party and uh, you know, the Sinn Féin SDLP in Northern Ireland and others to, to you know, put a lot of pressure on the territorial integrity of the UK. So I think Brexit made that quite a lot harder. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm always more interested in the question about kind of not so much what's controlled in Edinburgh or London, but what's what's controlled at a sort of very local level and, and how much autonomy can be given to yeah, the school teacher, the, the the person who runs the police station down the road from me, um, the, the sort of really, really micro level. I think actually reinvigoration in relationship between citizens and people with control of local public services through better information, more giving more responsibility and accountability and power um, and, and central government messing around with that stuff less, I, I think potentially has a transformative impact if you get it right. It's, it's not easy, um, but the, the centre worrying about the things it should worry about and not worrying about some of the rest and being honest about that with people, I think would be a great move forward. Excellent. Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of our time for this interview. The book is Culture and Values at the Heart of Policymaking written by a very engaging and erudite Stephen Yours. We thank him for his eager and active participation in this conversation. I hope that we've all learned something. I definitely have. And uh, I wish you a good and pleasant evening, Stephen. Thank you, thank very, you very much, much I really time. enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.